The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. John 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Chris Bowen. I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you. Uh, We are in our series on questions God asks us. We are a culture that has many questions, and we go to God with those questions looking for meaning and, and significance, for understanding about our circumstances, and as we continue in this series, we look this morning and we're um, seeing Jesus uh, continue uh, with his questioning of those whom he encounters. I want you to imagine yourself uh, at lunch with a friend. You've talked about the activities of your week and what's going on in the life of your family or at work. You've talked about the things that are going on in community, and your friend looks across the table at you and says, do you want to change? Now, that's a provocative question. To be asked, do you want to change, means that there was something that that is wrong, that that I need to change from, I need to turn from, and to begin to move towards. And in that, we find that that very word, change, is one that we struggle with. Uh, It's one that we struggle with because as much as we might want it in our lives, we fear it. It makes us anxious. And the reality is because it forces us 
to look beyond our circumstances. Jesus in this question isn't talking about the man's um, physicalness as much as he's talking about something else. Uh, and, and maybe your own circumstances, you, you might say, well, yeah, I'd love to change. I'd love to lose a few pounds. I'd love to gain um, that next rung in the career ladder. I wish my kids behaved a little bit better. Or, or maybe it's just a change uh, of some other superficial sense. But you see, the, what's driving this question and, and really what's driving uh, what we find in this passage is it's a fundamental opportunity to become something different. It's a call to address our identity more than it is to address our circumstances. And and the problem with this and why we are afraid is because we kind of like ourselves. (laughs) We're kind of comfortable with where we're at and what we're doing. And, and, And what we understand about this and what we understand about this passage in the gospel is the gospel is incredibly disruptive to our patterns of life. It's incredibly disruptive to our identity and and those things that we think define who we are. Uh, Augustine prayed a very honest prayer. He said, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. And so often that's our approach when it comes to the idea of of change. Uh, this, This question that Jesus is asking this man, do you want to be healed Do you want to be made whole? And so often we find ourselves saying, yes, but Lord, not yet. And so when we look at this passage today, we're going to look at three things. These things, these items are are really an unfolding of Jesus's mission. And first, what we're going to see is that Jesus meets us where we are, not where we should be. Jesus meets us where we are not where we should be. And when Jesus meets us in that place, he tells us that he is not a means to an end, but Jesus is the end. And as we understand those realities of where Jesus comes to us and that Jesus is the end, what we are going to begin to understand is that we are called to be a community, a community of believers who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. So we're going to see how Jesus meets us, how Jesus is the end, and how we are not perfect and we don't pretend to be. So let's find our, set ourselves in this particular passage. In John 5, the beginning of the chapter tells us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's, he's headed up there for a feast. He is, he is going up there to celebrate part of the, the religious calendar. And and as he goes into the city, he goes in by the sheep gate at a place called Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida means house of mercy. And as he goes in there, there is this this kind of two-pooled situation with these five walkways or colonnades. And at this particular pool in Jerusalem, this is where the passage tells us that the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, the lame, is where these folks gather. And the reason they gather here is because there's a superstition. The superstition is that the first person that gets into the pool when the waters are stirred will be healed. And so here we find this man. It tells us that he's been an invalid for 38 years. Now, that is a tremendous amount of time. 
But when we understand that in this particular culture and the life expectancy being far less than it is today, that if someone made it to the milestone of 10, they were projected to only live up to 45 years old. So this man has been an invalid, has been in this particular state for the better part of his life. We don't know what happened. We don't know if he was born this way or if he had an accident. We don't, we don't know what caused him to be in this estate other than the fact that he's been this way for a really, really long time. In fact, longer than he hasn't been. And so if we're just taking bare statistics, the reality is that this man is in the fourth quarter of his life. And he's lying there. He's doing the only thing that he knows to do. He's begging. And it's through this that he finds that he gets sustenance and provision and community from others. And along comes Jesus. And it tells us that Jesus sees him lying there. Now, what I want you to first see is this, that Jesus meets us where we are. This is not a place that we would pursue. While the reflection pools may be nice, while the colonnades might have been a very nice architectural feature, if you consider the number of folks here in their estate in life, it probably didn't smell too good. The company probably wasn't great. We might find that the hygiene, that the standard of living around this particular pool would be enough that we might take our children by the hand and walk in a different direction. In Chattanooga, there was a place like this, Miller Plaza. This is where all the, the homeless of the city would gather. And in this place, it, it did have a smell, and it did make you uncomfortable. And so it was not a place where Jen and I would frequent with the girls. But what we find about Jesus meeting people where they are and not where there should be is really a convicting reality about Jesus' mission. Because what I've grown to understand more and more in my life, and especially in the last month, is that I have spent much of my life avoiding the people that Jesus spent most of his life pursuing. And it's in this that Jesus is pursuing the brokenhearted, the lame, the blind, the paralyzed. And he's pursuing these folks to bring healing. You see, Jesus is in this place where it says it's a house of mercy, but Bethsaida. And he is going there to show people who society has rejected the mercy of the Lord. Matthew Henry observed this in his commentary. He said, observe, when Christ came to Jerusalem, he visited not the palaces, but the hospitals. You see, Jesus would go and he would find those folks that were in tremendous need. He didn't go expecting them to clean themselves up or to have themselves in such a way that they presented themselves as worthy to him. No, he pursued those who understood that they were not worthy at all. And Jesus goes and he meets this man. And what we find when we look at this passage is that Jesus asks a very obvious question. He goes to a man who's been an invalid for 38 years, and he says, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed? This would have been like asking one of my children this past Thursday, would you like a piece of candy? (laughs) All they did was run 
from house to house to house expecting people to give them candy. And we'd have to say, hey, remember your manners. Say thank you. The, the, the question is obvious. Of course this man wants to be healed. And we see that through the way he responds. He says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps in before me. And what's interesting in this passage, and what we really need to understand about this passage, is is the key to understanding it is the pool and the mat or the bed. And we're going to talk about those two things. But in order to understand this, Jesus brings healing to this man. And in verse 14, he says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is not offering a cause and effect reality of life. That this man did something to put himself in this situation. No, what Jesus is saying is that there is a greater crippling effect in our lives. And that comes through sin. And so Jesus is coming to this man who's a sinner. He's coming to this man who has a stench. He's coming to this man who has been avoided by others in the community. And he's coming to make him whole. And he says, do you want to be made well? Do you want... To be healed. We're seeing the really the beauty of Jesus' mission and that he came to seek and save the lost and give his life as a ransom for many. So it's in this place where Jesus comes and meets this man. The second thing that we see is that Jesus is not a means to an end, but Jesus is the end itself. You see, this man looks at Jesus, and when he responds to his question, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word. And he says, will you help me with this superstition? If I could just get in this water, I would be, I would be better. If I could just get in that pool and didn't have the other person beat me to it, I'd be all right. You see, the reality is that a lot of us have those pools in our lives that we think if we could just attain that pool, if we could just get into that pool, then we would be okay. It might be a greater, um, a greater position in your community. It might be a relationship. It might be a dress size. It might be another comma in your income or in your 401k. It might be You fill in the blank. What is it that you are looking for to bring you satisfaction? What is it that you are looking for and dreaming about? What is it that you're telling yourself that if you were to attain this thing would give you the wholeness that you've been looking for? A friend and mentor of mine told me the story once of how he had run in to a young lady after she had graduated college. This is a a young lady he had known and ministered to in his campus ministry. And she told him that she was getting married. And he delighted in this and shared in her joy. And he says, are you excited? She says, oh, yes, I'm so excited. We have the perfect church and just the right photographer. And my dress, it's amazing. And as my friend listened to this account, he realized she said nothing about the groom. And he looked at her and said, well, do you love this man? Are you excited about marrying him? And he saw her kind of come to this place and this realization. 
that she didn't want a wedding to get the groom. She wanted a groom to get the wedding. You see, in her life, she had seen this particular relationship as a means to an end uh, to fulfill what she most longed for. You see, so often what happens in the church is we look at Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus, I'll love you and I'll serve you and I will give you just enough, but not too much. As long as you promise me a good life. As long as you help my children behave better. As long as I get that grade on the test and don't lose my scholarship. As long as I can continue to be upwardly mobile and have minimal suffering and pain in my life, Jesus, I'm happy to follow you. But when those things don't come, we find ourselves scratching our heads saying, Jesus, why do you not care? You see, the reality is, is he hasn't given us the thing that we said we want. Because what he knows is the thing we want is not good enough. That it'll never satisfy. We've actually wanted the wrong things. We've spent our whole lives in pursuit of something that we think will bring us the satisfaction that will only come from drinking from the fountain of living water. F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby was arguably one of the greatest American novels of the 20th century. J. Gatsby spends his whole life in pursuit of attaining the social stature and affluence in order to win back his love, Daisy. He amasses a tremendous fortune and gains a home that looks across from the estate that Daisy and her family occupy, her husband. And on that, he sees a green light flickering, and he would go and stand on his dock and look out at that green light, plotting the events of how he would win again her affection. Of all the things he's amassed, of all the fortune and all the acclaim, nothing satisfies him until Daisy is his. And what we find at the end of the novel through twists and turns and ultimately Jay Gatsby not getting what he wants and ultimately losing his life, the author says this as it closes the book. Gatsby believed in the green light the future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but, no, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms further. One fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. You see, what F. Scott Fitzgerald is saying there is that we can give ourselves to pursuits. We can give ourselves to means that we think will bring us the end that we desire, but unless those things... F. Scott Fitzgerald's not this, I'm importing it. Unless those things are Jesus, what we'll find is we'll be a lot like Gatsby, that it's empty and pointless and they'll ultimately consume our lives. You see, Jesus isn't a means to an end. He is the end itself. Jesus comes into this man's life and meets him where he is. 
He brings his grace and the mercy of the Lord in this place, and he changes his life. And he shows this man that he's not just another avenue to get the thing that he wants, but he's going to give him something greater. He's going to address his need and make him whole. And so Jesus doesn't acknowledge the pool again, but he looks down to this man and he says, get up, take your bed and walk. I love this idea, this image of the bed. And why is that important for us? You see, this man had laid here for 38 years. This bed was the only comfort he had in life. It was his source of connection to other invalids around this pool. And Jesus tells him to take it with you because you know what? You're not coming back here. I've got a better plan for you. I've got a new place for you. But if you consider this reality, a pattern of living that you've had for 38 years, that you're being called to something new, that is an incredibly horrifying thought. It's a scary thought. What's next? You see, a beggar in the ancient Near East could make a pretty good living. People would provide for them. They didn't have to do anything. All they had to do was to be present. And so this man's asking, well, how am I going to eat? And where am I going to live? And where am I going to stay? And who are going to be my community? And who's going to be my friends? But as Jesus is meeting them in that place, if Jesus is is enough and can provide for this man to, to raise him up and to bring him wholeness, then Jesus will take care of all the rest. You see, so often we get caught up in the details, assuming that if we don't have this or if we don't have that, then we won't have satisfaction. But really what we're looking for is the satisfaction that the world tells us we need. But for those of us who've given ourselves in fullness and in its pursuit, understand that it never truly satisfies, that it leaves us empty and feeling pointless. Though we try, like John Rockefeller, when asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. So oftentimes we are sitting there in our pursuits and and what we feel will bring us satisfaction and all we're left with is a little bit more. But Jesus comes and he says, friends, get up, take your bed and go. And so what we find is that Jesus is the end. And it's the very thing that Paul writes in Colossians, that his life is hidden with Christ. And it's understanding that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died. And that by grace and through faith, he gives us the wholeness that he has come to the world to restore. And so when we understand these things, we're beginning to understand the disruptive reality of the gospel. That it promises us and gives us a new life. That it gives us a new identity, a new future, and a hope. And so as he gives us these things and he is calling us out of our circumstances into this reality of seeing ourselves different and transforming our lives, he's bringing us into a restored community. But the problem is that community is a struggle. Oftentimes I've I've heard folks say, you know, I like Jesus. It's the people that are the problem." And what we find is that that's the very thing that this man encounters. For this person, this man who has been lame for 38 years, now stands up and he's walking with his bed. And it says, So the Jews said to the man, 
who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You see, what these folks had done is they had taken the law, and they had made something that was a good thing, that was to lead us to God, to make us to make an, it into an ultimate thing of how we would relate to God. You see, the gospel isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of rules about how we get right with God. No, it's about what Jesus did to make us right. And so here this situation is, and the Jewish leaders see this man, and rather than celebrating the reality and be amazed at the work of the Lord and his life, they talk about what he's not doing right rather than the fact that he's been made whole. So oftentimes, I think we in the church act like we're perfect when we understand that we're really not. And you see, what Jesus is calling us to, and the reason why I believe this passage is in here, is it's showing us what a community should be through a negative example. You see, a church is to be a hospital for sinners. It's to be a tired place for weary Christians. It's to be a place for someone to come in who is exploring the truth claims of Jesus Christ to come and be met with gentleness and kindness and patience. But so oftentimes what happens in the church is we talk about how someone's not dressed the right way or likes the right music or sends their kids to the right school how they don't speak the right way or even smell the right way. We want, to, we want people to be where we want them to be, not where they are. But Jesus, through this passage, is continuing to show us that it's not about where we are. It's about where he's taking us. And what he's showing us through this passage is that Jesus left heaven to come down to earth to meet us in those places. He's come to bind up the brokenhearted, to restore and, 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 and renew all the things that sin has ruined. He's telling us that life isn't about behavior modification, but he's telling us that the gospel brings life transformation. He's telling us it's not about how we get right with God. It's about what Jesus has done on the cross to make us right. And these folks miss the point. How often has the church missed the point? You see, I know I've been guilty of this. I see folks and I think they should be reading better books, having better theology, that they should be doing different things and behaving a different way, that their desires for a good life should be different. And often what I do, rather than engaging them, is I talk about them. What we find is that Jesus doesn't talk about this man. No, he goes and he sits with him. He asks him a question. And then he makes him whole. Sometimes what that may look like is to engage someone, a troublesome neighbor, a quarrelsome friend, to show them grace to show them patience, to show them mercy. So oftentimes, 
We don't open our lives to others. We just keep them at an arm's length. We keep them at a distance because we want to compare ourselves to them. But when we understand that the the foot of the cross, the ground at the foot of the cross is level, that it doesn't matter how great your theology is or how much you know or how many letters you have after your name or many commas you have in your stock stock portfolio. The reality is, is that Jesus has come and that Jesus has sought us where we are, but he will not leave us as we are. He says he came to seek and save the lost and give his life as a ransom for many. It tells us in 2 Corinthians that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and the new have come. It tells us a few verses after that, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus is doing is he's coming to change us. He wants to change our lives and bring transformation and give us shalom and wholeness. That through changing our lives, he wants that to extend into our homes and our families and and from our families into our communities and from our communities to the world. Friends, he's calling us to be a church that doesn't pretend to be perfect. But the, the church who worships the one who is. The Savior who came from heaven and earth, who hung on a cross, was died and rose again three days later. Friends, the question is, do we want to change? Do we want to be made whole? Or are we a lot like Augustine? Jesus, I want to be made whole, but not yet. Ultimately, Augustine figured it out. He submitted himself to the rule and reign of his Savior, Jesus. He understood that Jesus came not to give inspiration, but to give salvation, to bind up all those who were broken and downtrodden and lame and spiritually crippled by their sin. And taking those things to himself, he gave them the newness of life and the fullness of a new identity. Let's pray.